Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, in wonderful downtown Boise, Idaho today. And on our call today, we have Dr. Kelsey Smith, all the way in Oklahoma. I'm assuming I'm looking out the window right now and I'm looking at fog and 30 degrees and I'm guessing that Dr. Kelsey Smith has some warmer weather. So she actually. Yeah, right? Well, really interesting. Okay. So you don't want to miss this episode because Dr. Kelsey Smith is soon to be opening a DPC clinic. You guys that follow our um Podcasts know about DPC, direct primary care. She got tired of the, she's tired of the insurance model and she realizes that she can help patients better and be more affordable if she opens her own clinic um, and doesn't take insurance. So one of the stories that I really like about this is that she has a great story about how there is a patient that actually qualified for Medicaid, which if you guys don't know, that's, you know, state funded medical insurance. And this patient doesn't want to qualify for Medicaid. She wants to um, pay Dr. Dr. Um, Kelsey cash in order to to seek to seek care and and have good access. So some of the times we think of, I get questions all the time. It's like, well, you know, I went into healthcare to help people, not just to help people that can only pay cash. Let me tell you something. Um, coverage. Insurance coverage doesn't mean care. Um, coverage doesn't equal care. So just because somebody has government insurance, whether it be Medicare or whether it be Medicaid, does not mean they get access to a doctor. So that's why Kel Dr. Kelsey Smith is changing um, her model because she wants to be uh, have a good act, have patients have good access to her. So stay tuned for the entirety show to to find out how she is going to do that. So she is opening up Pioneer Health DPC in Stillwater, Oklahoma, in January, I believe, which is just a few weeks away. So, uh, Dr. Smith, tell us about your journey. Yeah, like I said, I'm in Stillwater, Oklahoma. I'm a small town Oklahoma girl um, at heart, and I'm a small town doctor. Uh, Stillwater is a town of about fifty thousand, but we service a very rural area extending up to the Kansas border and into the Oklahoma Panhandle. So a lot of my patients are hardworking folks that um, you know are in agriculture, but also industry and education. We're in a college town, so have a very diverse patient population. When I went into medicine, I didn't think I would do family medicine at all. Um, I really thought I'd do something along the lines of anesthesia or something that um, I could kind of hide from the patients that I was serving and not not really know their names or know their story, um, but practice my trade. And throughout medical school, that was one of the first things um, that I learned along the way was that I, I really kind of treasured those interactions with patients. And I, I liked all aspects of medicine. I like the pediatrics rotation. I like obstetrics. I like surgery. Uh, and family medicine was something that uh, offered a chance to continue all of that rather than to just say goodbye to a whole segment of my patient population that I'd been taught to treat. Uh, and what was interesting to me was when you start to consider a career in primary care, you, you get a lot of criticism um, as a physician because primary care is you know, considered kind of a fallback plan for a lot of medical students. Uh, it's one of those things that we know primary care physicians don't make as much money. We can't pay back our student loans as quickly as some of our specialist colleagues. Um, and it's oftentimes what you do when you're 
you have nothing else you can do. You know, you're that, that wonderful plan to join an orthopedics residency fell through. And so what, what's your backup plan? Maybe you'll do family medicine. Um, I'm proud to say that family medicine was never a backup plan for me. That was, it was something that I wanted to be able to practice all of the tools that I was taught. And so that was the, the first kind of revelation that family medicine was something that you could help people through a relationship with them um, rather than prescribing medications or, um, you know, providing a procedure per se, that therapeutic relationship was what was really uh, valuable. Um, interestingly, we both know that insurance places zero value on relationship-based care. Um, so, so that was, was one uh, flawed part of my plan, but, but I, I pursued family medicine to, to be able to provide that therapeutic relationship, care for entire families. Um, I did an obstetrics uh, fellowship after my family medicine residency and have provided obstetric care here in, at, in Stillwater for the last 13 years, along with general family medicine. So true womb to the tomb type of care. Um, we do our own hospital rounds and, you know, we, we just, we kind of do it all. But uh, that, that was probably the, the second thing that kind of was a wake up call to me in medicine was when I did finish my training. Um, in 2007, I graduated from the OU Family Medicine Program in Tulsa and was like any young resident looking for places to work. And even 13 years ago, the primary means to do that were to sign a contract with a hospital system um, as an employed physician. And none of those employment contracts really seemed all that great. They didn't, they seemed to kind of hem you in and, and try to buttonhole you into what you were going to do and for how many hours a week and for what type of patient population and really didn't give the doctor any control, but I didn't think there was really any other option until I was approached by one of my current partners um, here in Stillwater who had already started an old fashioned private practice clinic um, and said, you know, it's there, there is still a way to practice medicine as a private business. And there's a reason all these people are offering you contracts. You know, they they look to make money off of us. And so so that was that was my second wake up call was to join private practice instead of be employed. And so in that in that way, I feel like I've been a little bit of a um, rebel or have rebelled against the system a bit um, from the get go out of training was to to just buck the system and say that that's not um employee employed relationship is is kind of a conflict of interest um between my patients and uh myself what what i didn't realize was i was still in a conflict of interest not just even though i was free of the employment constraints i was still hemmed in by those insurance contracts that then i was forced to be a part of so when you know i started 13 years ago, you want to be on as many insurance contracts as possible because you're looking for patients. And so in the last 13 years, I've been a part of, you know, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, you know, Health Choice, all of the big names, plus all the government programs, Medicare, Medicaid, all of those types of things. And they've all gotten increasingly complex and cumbersome over the last 13 years. And with a lot of the governmental programs that have started, um, it has been a bit of a wake up call to realize that they never intended to design the game to be won by individual physicians and, and certainly not for patients either. So uh, realizing that uh, insurance really doesn't have 
my best interest or my patient's best interest at heart. Um, I started thinking outside the box. Um, direct primary care had been something in on my radar since, oh, about the time MIPS and MACRA were introduced in the Medicare landscape in about 2015. And we started looking at how we were going to deal with those increasing requirements by the government. And at that point, we ended up joining an ACO as a group rather than proceed with, you know, jumping into the direct primary care landscape. But even that's becoming more and more complex. And direct primary care is a way I can, you know, kind of jump out of that fire and, and provide real care for my patients. For myself and maybe our listeners and viewers too, what's MIPS and macro? And I know it, it's if it's a government program, it has to be complicated. Give us the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> It's a Medicare program designed designed to be a payment-based model based on quality. But as we know, uh, the government and insurance can't really no. define quality because they don't, they're not there within the relationship with the doctor and the patient because the quality of healthcare is defined by what the patient's goals are, not by a particular number that can be generated by an electronic medical system. Right. Right. And then explain to us what an ACO is. An accountable care organization. Um, so you can join together with other uh, clinics or hospital groups to basically absorb risk as a group rather than um, take that risk uh, upon yourself as a clinic. So you're saying, OK, well, as a group, we are going to try to meet these quality goals rather than as an individual clinic. So at the end of the day, Rather than pay you for good care, the, the idea is at the end, the end of the program, if you haven't met the bar, you may be required to pay money back into the system that has already been given to you. So if you don't meet their predefined standards of care, you have to then remit payment back to the government. And so through the affordable or accountable care organization, that helps to limit each individual party's risk by pooling that risk into a, a larger group. I see. Okay. Thank you for that, for that um, education piece. Cause I had no idea. There's so many, you know, anytime the government creates something and it has three initials, you know, it's really complicated and you know that the only winner is going to be the government. Um, and it's going to be really expensive to try to follow those models. Speaking of expensive EMR, another three initials, um, which is government mandated since I can't remember the year. If you want to build our government programs, um, right. you were re before the show, you were talking about EMR expenses. So can you go ahead and hit on that a little bit and how these electronic medical <laughs> records, when the doctor has their computer in your face, when you're seeing a patient, they're checking the boxes has nothing to do with quality or is that no. correct? Correct? Not, a, not quality as a patient would define it. And um, we are clicking those boxes to try and meet the quality measures that are predefined by the third party payers. But that really has nothing to do with what the what the patient would define as quality. So, you know, clicking through to say whether this person is at an increased fall risk, whether they need to discuss uh, tobacco cessation or whether they're at risk for depression, all these things that they want to have checked at every visit. It doesn't matter why they were there. If they're there for a sore throat or high blood pressure, you know, all these things have to be checked. So those are part of the things we're doing with the electronic health record. Um, it I, I guess, you know, I, I date myself by saying when I graduated from medical school in 2003 from the University of Oklahoma, we were just starting to debut these electronic medical records at that point. And um, I guess I had a little bit of a 
I guess, uh, um, optimistic view of, of what these systems could provide because, you know, paper charts are cumbersome. They can get lost and you they're not portable and you can't share them easily amongst healthcare teams. And so an electronic record seemed like a great idea. The interesting thing about it was it, it became a tool for the bean counters rather than for the medical professionals or the patients, either one. And so you, you have to be able to code things into computer speak for the bean counters to be able to look at their endpoints. You know, how many people have reached their ideal blood pressure for hypertensive patients? How many people have reached a goal A1C um, that are diabetics? The idea then becomes that you're a better doctor if you've clicked the appropriate boxes, um, regardless of what you've done for your patient. And those um, medical records have gotten increasingly cumbersome and complex and mainly to create a document that that is either searchable for those quality measures or can create a complex billing document. Um, ICD-10 was another um, landmark in the last few years that got rolled out that that provides an increasingly complex structure for diagnosis of patient conditions that then can be linked to a payment code on the back end. And um, so the, the electronic medical record is now really a very complex billing structure rather than a tool for doctors and patients. And so we, I've used the same electronic health record since 2007. Well, actually since 2003, because my uh, residency program used this same record as well as a product um, put out by GE called Centricity. But that is an obsolete program now. And so it has gotten bought by one of the healthcare giants in the electronic medical record world called Athena. And the you know, idea is they're, they're not going to provide service to a product that they have purchased. Um, so they were, they were kind enough to offer us an upgrade to their brand new, newest version of Athena, which of course has all the bells and whistles to provide you billing features and make sure everything with insurance is submitted clean and you get your payments back as quickly as possible, you know, still going to be a 60 day turnaround or something, but yeah, uh, they, they promise that that's part of what they can offer for the low, low price for our five physician clinic of $332,000. Um, and that was, that was not something that uh, was feasible for us. And, and there's, it's things that, um, you know, and I, even the people I have as patients who are also my friends don't realize goes on behind the scenes and trying to run a medical practice um, for really every patient we see. And as, as costs go up, you know, you have a few different options. You know, one is to sell your clinic, which a lot of physicians have. That's why you can't find very many private practice physicians out there anymore. They've just opted, you know, say this, the business of medicine is too complex. I can't keep up. There's too many regulations and too many bars to meet. And the rules are different according to which payer you're trying to please. And so better to just sell out to that health system that is all too eager to to buy your your clinic and that's one option the other is to just run faster on the hamster wheel and um, truthfully that's that's what we've actually tried doing for the last several years every time we're faced with a new requirement well then i guess we need to fit two more patients into our day uh, you know, to, to try to make ends meet and try to try to meet those requirements that the, the government and third party payers are passing down to us. But that um, obviously doesn't work either. 
pretty soon you wear out your hamsters. So um, I guess that's one reason, uh, another reason that I started looking into the direct primary care option. Well, I'm glad you are, and I'm, I'm glad you decided to make the switch because it's, it's a sad reality that many good doctors like yourself, they basically have two options. Um, they either leave medicine or they, you know, they start a practice like you're, like you're talking about in DPC. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of them have left medicine um, because it's just such a racket. And, you know, when I think about that $330,000 for an EMR, you know, as is typical with any kind of government program, because that's a government program, the EMRs had to, you know, they, they, um, in order to build Medicaid, Medicare, to do, do the government programs, you had to have an electronic medical record that was approved by the government. So if you follow the dollars, you know, Athena, that big group, they have spent millions of dollars oh, yeah. on lobbying the government to make it mandatory that you have to have an EMR and it doesn't make patients any safer whatsoever. And, and all it does, is it makes the insurance in general, all it does is make things more expensive. It doesn't, you know, quality of care. It does not give anything with quality. Just because you have insurance doesn't mean you get care. In fact, I will say this. I think health insurance most of the time is a barrier to care. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You want to expand on that? Uh, yeah. There was a case not long ago that uh, someone came in with uh, back pain that had been uh, conservatively managed for quite some time, but he continued to have um, symptoms that made it appear he probably had a disc that was uh, needing to be addressed um, potentially with a, a steroid injection into the epidural space. But to localize that, an MRI was going to be necessary. Um, so he was in enough pain that um, his pain, I think, is what probably prompted his, uh, I guess, the is the need, you know, the, the need to look for other solutions to our problem, because to get that MRI scheduled through his insurance, was going to require a prior authorization and potentially a week or two before that could be scheduled. And then, you know, how much is that going to cost? I don't know. Have you met your deductible? And it's right, like right. about $2,500 to 3000 out of your pocket. If you've not, if you have, then depends on what your contract says. Is it an 80-20 type of thing? Or, you know, so I have no idea how much that MRI is going to cost him in the end when it goes through the insurance system. And he just asked me, is there any other way? Can we, I would like to get this done today if possible, you know? And so um, we are fortunate that we have some private imaging companies that are nearby and they have branches across the state and they were not able to do an MRI here locally, but just about an hour away in Edmond, Oklahoma, they were able to schedule an MRI. I asked them what the cash price was. It'd be $300. And so he went and had an MRI of his back that day and we got the information we needed so that then he could be referred to a pain management physician who could then do that epidural steroid injection. And with the insurance, he, if he ever got an MRI, it would have been weeks later. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, even with his insurance coverage, even if he had met his deductible, he is going to pay more than $300 out of pocket. Oh, easily. Guaranteed. But, but that's part of the, the racket, as you say, is that you see these inflated prices that were never really meant to be based in reality as far as the expense that it takes to provide that service. And, and it reinforces the belief that you have to have this very expensive policy to cover your healthcare expenses, because how are you ever going to afford these types of things when they come up, if you don't have this plan to protect you per se, when really, you know, 
all of us in direct primary care are now having the courage to say that the emperor has no clothes. That's um, just not true. There's, there is a way to make healthcare more affordable. Oh yeah. And the way is what you're doing is actually, you know, get out of insurance. I mean, people think that in health and I think we've been indoctrinated by the, by the, by the government and by the media that health and everyone needs to be insured. And that's what you need. You need to be insured and that's, what's going to make healthcare cheaper. Well, the reality, that's what made healthcare expensive. Right. Let's face it. You, and you follow, you follow the history of it and you know, what really made it expensive and when the, it just started going off the chart is when Medicare back in the 1960s um, became law. Um, and, you know, before that, there's stories of doctors in the, in the, I was delivered by a doctor that started practicing in the 1960s. And, you know, he would do, I think his, his he would do home visits for $3 and office visits for a dollar and follow-up call. Those were new patients and follow-up calls for a dollar. Now, Fast forward, you know, 50 years later, you know, a little over 50 years later, and, you know, an average office call is probably $300. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me that inflation went up that much. Right. It's 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 due to the federal government being involved in it and creating just a mess. Um, and speaking of that, so I wanted to mention that um, my book is available in paperback. I just recently released a, a paperback book, and it's called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And it goes into the entire history uh, in healthcare of how the government actually created this mess. There's a six-step solution Um Last year, it was the number one seller on Kindle version. We released a paperback version just yesterday, and it's being promoted heavily um, on Amazon. And it is a best-seller in preventive medicine category, Kindle version. It is a new re- number one new release in the pharmacies category and paperback version. Um, yesterday was a special deal, but it's still not too late to get a deal today. So go to Amazon today and download or order my paperback version book, um, um, Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. Because one of the things is, is that doctors like Dr. Kelsey Smith, we talk about DPC in the book. Um, they are a part of the fix of the problem. The way to fix the problem is not fix the system, but to get out of the system because the system is a scam. It's a ripoff. And that's one of the goals of this podcast is to educate and empower consumers that you guys are in charge of your own health. And that means the government shouldn't be, your health insurance company shouldn't be, your employer shouldn't be. You should be in charge of your own health, and that includes financial too. You can make those decisions, and healthcare can be very affordable, just like Dr. Smith is, is talking about. Speaking of affordability, Dr. Smith, how affordable is direct primary care? When you open up in January, how affordable are you going to be? The, um, the interesting thing about that is, you know, when the people ask me how why is it more affordable you know i'm providing the same services so how how do the prices come down and the reason is we have in office people who basically work to make sure we're going to get paid through that insurance system they double check our billing charges double check the charts to make sure all those boxes are checked that make it a a, a better clean claim to go to insurances and and help to ensure that you'll get paid. So we have several office staff that do that. We then also contract with a billing company out of Tulsa, Oklahoma that submits those claims for us and of course takes a percentage of our our collections after we receive those claims. And then of course there's always going to be a percentage and sometimes a 
surprisingly large percentage of claims that have to be reworked um, to try and, and obtain that payment. And that's that's why people end up getting a bill, you know, after a simple office visit, maybe two or three months later, that truthfully, they don't remember that why they came to the doctor that day. I probably don't remember either unless I look back at their health record. Um, and, and so that's, not, you know, there's a lot of time spent where I'm trying to pay my staff and keep the lights on where payment has not occurred for a service for two or three months um, and continuing to pay the billing um, you know, system to make this happen. So when you cut a lot of that out, um, then it's really, it does. Direct primary care is a, is a perfect um, name for the system because a patient is just contracting with me. It cuts right. all those middlemen out that, of course, are all drawing a salary. Um, and unfortunately, in the direct primary care method and and hopefully fortunately those people are free to go find another source of employment because they're not needed anymore um so for in my that, that, excuse me yeah but that's part of that's part of the problem it is i mean think about it if if you do what you're doing I mean, i've heard uh, and, and please remember your train of thought i've heard that the average doctor's office now this is a few years ago the average doctor's office now has nine people that support them most of those are due to insurance billing. Think about that. When you go to your office, I'm going to guess your new office um, with direct primary care, it's going to be you and maybe a part-time, full-time receptionist type person, maybe a nurse type person. Um, so basically you got rid of seven or eight people and that's a problem. So they want to perpetuate the system. They, those people that are employed, that's why hospitals are traditionally inefficient. Those people want to stay employed. You know, and even though they deep down inside, they know the scam, they know it's a ripoff, yeah. but they want to keep their job. So anyway, that's part of the that's part of the problem. So go ahead yeah. and keep going with where, where you're going. So starting off, my uh, my adult patient price will be eighty five dollars a month um, for all inclusive care. Um, anyone from 18 to 65. Um, if they add a child onto that, um, it'll be an additional twenty five dollars per per child for that care. It um, doesn't matter if they come in five times a month or if they don't need me that month. I'm I'm available for whatever they might need. Uh, the the other side of that coin with direct primary care is I'm leaving the billing system type of electronic medical record behind for a more functional electronic medical record that is focused more on the relationship. So the communication that has to occur between doctor and patient. So part of what I think patients want to pay for when they have a physician is access, like you said, access mm -hmm. to that care. And so even now when I see somebody the same day that they call, um, that, that whole process is going to require that they call my front office staff. My front office staff takes a message and they might send that message to my medical assistant or potentially straight to me. It looks like you're your schedule is full, Dr. Smith. Can you fit this person in? And I say, well, yeah, how about 115? Let's put them, you know, next to something else that looks to be pretty quick. And then that message gets sent back to the front office staff who then calls the patient back and they may be doing something important. So then they leave a message and then that person has to call back. So you see how convoluted yeah. a simple same day appointment can become. And in the direct primary care model, the software is designed to simplify that whole process to where every person who enrolls in the direct primary care model has a phone number they can text or email, and that comes straight to myself and my medical assistant. So then that can be directly answered by text or email. And oftentimes the 
situation can be taken care of without an appointment. And um, because that's one thing that the insurance model has perpetuated as well. That's the only way a business transaction takes place is if there is an actual appointment with the doctor. Um, and prior to our pandemic, we found ourselves in that had to be an in-person appointment. Telehealth right. did not count. And um, so we've, we've been able to incorporate telehealth since COVID-19, but um, that will soon come to an end, I'm sure, because insurance wants, if telehealth occurs, to be with their chosen telehealth provider, not your primary care physician that you know and trust. Um, so the, the new system will then allow people to communicate with us more efficiently and more directly and hopefully facilitate um, care that that may not require an office visit to to accomplish the means that we, we hope to accomplish. Yeah. And, you know, I will say for, for the doctors that, you know, we work through, through Moses like professional pharmacy. We, we have a network of a lot of DPC doctors that we work with. And I will tell you, one of the, the coolest things is when you meet these doctors and you go to their clinics is usually they're the ones that are up front yeah. <laughs> many times. And, or if not, they have receptionists up front and, you know, you'll see the doctor come in and say, Hey, Mrs. Jones, you ready for your appointment? And the doctor's like, and p patients are just like, I can't believe that the doctor came out and actually asked me to come back. He checked me in. Well, yeah, I mean, uh. why not? You know, and it's such a convoluted system that we've created in a traditional model, and it doesn't have to be that way. And I tell you, I feel for doctors because they've they are strapped. And you know, I think the average doctor actually gets to see. You could probably know these numbers, um, Doctor Smith, but five to seven minutes with a patient. Does that sound about right on average? Yeah, it is. On our current uh, scheduling system, it's set up for a 15 minute basic appointment for, you know, basically any type of appointment, maybe obstetric, pediatric, geriatric, 15 minutes is allotted for pretty much any basic appointment. And that can be stretched to 30 minutes, but then a lot of times you might end up squeezing somebody else in into a seven and a half minute visit so that you're not losing revenue on right. that. So that's what we find in our current system is 15 minutes allotted per patient, but which sounds reasonable until you realize that half of that time or more than half of that time is spent documenting what happens in that time frame. So that's why patients don't see the entire 15 minutes with their physician is they're they're stuck creating that billing document that the electronic health record requires um, either while you're talking to your physician and that's why they're not looking you in the eye and, and seemingly paying as much attention to you as, as you would like them to be because they're trying to multitask and create this um, cumbersome document at the same time you're speaking to them or they spend half the allotted time with you and then finish their documentation afterwards um, Unfortunately, I, I guess this is another reason I guess I fit better in the direct primary care world is I would tend to spend the 15 minutes or more with the patient that was scheduled and not get the documentation done um, and then move on to the next patient a little bit late, later than they're scheduled and not get their documentation done. So then at the end of the day, I'm left with these multiple charts to complete and check the boxes to take either stay late to complete or take home with me. And in fact, my 12 uh, year old asked me the other night, he said, mom, once you're in direct primary care, are you going to have to stay up late at night charting? And I said, well, I sure hope not. <laughs> that's, that's part of the reason for the switch is, is to try to get away from that 
uh, broken system. Absolutely. And that's what really needs to happen because doctor burnout is a really big issue. And, you know, I don't think as patients in the system, they really want a doctor that's burnt out taking care of them. Right. Unfortunately, that's kind of the norm now. Um, so kudos to you. So I do have, a, so obviously $85 plus $25 for a kid, very affordable. It's less than a cell phone bill a month. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, so tell us, you know, commonly when I talk to to people about this, even people that are in healthcare, even doctors that are in healthcare. And I will tell you, I think there's a lot of doctors that are in stuck in the system um, and by their own fault, honestly, because they're fearful and, and I get that, but um, you know, they need to step up and step out of the system. So they're not accessories to the crime. Um, I'm quoting Dr. Keith Smith about that because he has said that over and over again. Uh, Dr. Keith Smith, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast. He's the uh, co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma and the anesthesiologist himself. And he felt when he was in that insurance model that he was an accessory to the crime. So, you know, he has a great model in Oklahoma, you know, cash transparent pricing of, you know, complete surgeries with all inclusive. And, um, you know, he, he's one of the quotes on my book. He quoted on the cover of my book, he quoted about being an accessory to the crime. And that's why he got out. And one of the things I try to do when I talk to other healthcare providers is like, I used to defend them. And I used to say, yeah, you know, I get it. You're in pharmacy or you're a nurse or you're a doctor. Um, and I get it. You're stuck in a big hospital system. I used to say, you know, but it just, it is what it is. You just have to, you know, keep going through the grind. I don't agree with that anymore. After talking to Dr. Smith, I think we all need to stand up and get out because it, you, we're being an accessory to the crime and just perpetuating the situation when we stay in it. So you're making healthcare affordable. Obviously, you just gave us some prices that, that make it affordable. So, but unfortunately, when I talk to some of my doctor, doctor friends, they will, their first definition is the first thing they'll think of is concierge care. And I don't want to turn away Medicaid patients. And, sure. um, you know, I don't want to just help you know, um, rich people, because it's just for rich people that can pay cash. You recently have a story of a patient that you are currently following and her health insurance costs went way up and she was going to have to qualify for Medicaid. She's excited for you to be a DPC doctor because she's going to be able to afford to go to you. Can you explain that a little bit, that story? Yeah, I mean, we've we've already created a dichotomy in healthcare where to to have private insurance becomes so unrealistically expensive, even if your employer is paying a portion of that, which if they are, that's wonderful, but you don't realize how much of your paycheck is, is right. you're leaving on the table because they're paying for your health care. Um, in her case, um, her employer was um, able to provide her health care insurance. So when it was just her, it was $40 a month for her health care insurance um, that she paid you know, out of her pocket. Now, her employer was obviously paying a much larger price for that, um, but she didn't see that out of you know her paycheck. She didn't pay it back. When she got pregnant, her prenatal care um, was going to cost an, an additional amount out of pocket for her, and I, I was her prenatal provider. Um, and when she spoke with her uh, benefits provider at her employer, they said, well, that's, that's just how this plan is written. Yes, you will have quite a bit out of pocket, but the nice thing is you qualify for state Medicaid that will then be a secondary insurance for your obstetric care and you won't have to pay anything out of pocket. So, yeah, she's 
a realist, but also a, a very proud person who says, you know, I don't really feel like I need a handout to obtain my medical care, but I guess if that's the way the system works, okay, I'll sign up for state Medicaid. So to save the dollars and cents, she now has the private health care insurance that's supposed to take care of the job, but it doesn't. So then she gets state Medicaid as a secondary to help to cover the cost of that delivery and hospital stay and all of that, that that entails. Her child is born and she goes back to her employer and says, I need to add my new baby to my insurance plan. And they say, oh, that's great. Let's add her. And that'll now be $1,300 a month out of your paycheck uh, because that, uh, you know, complete expense for that um, covered life was coming out of her paycheck now rather than the employer covering part of the child's health care insurance. Um, when, when she protested and said that sounded exorbitant, they said, well, but no, that's, that's okay because your child will still qualify for that state Medicaid program. And so you can have coverage and it's nothing out of your pocket. So the two options she's left with is either to pay $1,300 a month to have private insurance that she feels as a responsible citizen she should do to you know not be a, a drain on the system and, and absorb taxpayer programs that are paid for by the state or you know, apply for state assistance when she feels like she shouldn't have to. There, there should be something in between that's not $1,300 a month, but it's not zero either. And so she was, she was very excited to hear about direct primary care because it was a way that honors that person's integrity um, and gives them a responsible way to provide care for their family without feeling like they um, are taking advantage of the system. And um, what I've found is, you know, I take care of a lot of people who are on our state Medicaid system. They aren't looking for a handout. They're looking for a realistic way to, to make ends meet and to, to get the care that they need. And the system has forced them into that option right. because private insurance is just not an affordable option in most cases. Uh, people stay in jobs that they hate just because they have the the benefits that it provides, and that's that's not how healthcare should be. Nope. Um, so so that's that's what's exciting um, about direct primary care to me is it it gives people an an inside look to what the the healthcare costs actually are, and hopefully if enough of us do it, it will kind of bring down the veil of these healthcare prices nationwide and force the system to change. Well, it is. I mean, it's a growing movement. It's a revolution. Thank you for being part of it. Um, it is changing. Do I think the other system will change? Uh, not before it implodes because, you know, hospitals in collusion with the government, in collusion with um, insurance companies, in collusion with big pharma, that's not going to change. They're making billions. They don't care about patients. They don't care about doctors. Um, you know, and that's why, you know, when you talk of private insurance, and I talk about this in my book, um, in my opinion, um, any kind of traditional health insurance, it's government insurance because it is so regulated by the federal government, what to pay, how to pay, um, what the you know um, diagnosis can be to pay, what the allowable is, all those things are regulated by the federal government. So private insurance people that your employer is paying, it's government insurance, period, in my opinion. I think the best thing to do, and I talk about this in my book, is um, 
partner with a doctor like yourself, be a DPC, and get out of health insurance, period. And the great thing is, is there, there, there are what's called health sharing programs. Um, some of them are faith-based. Some of them aren't faith-based now. And they are a wonderful way to um, provide some kind of – it's not insurance, but they are a wonderful way to pay medical bills if there is kind of catastrophe going on. I will tell you, my wife and I – Christian Healthcare Ministries, we, up until recently, we paid $135 a month. Now we pay like $246, still very inexpensive. We save $15,000 a year over traditional insurance. And guess what? We get to decide what doctor we see. We get to decide the hospital we go to. We get to decide what's covered, what's not covered. Um, we don't want maternity coverage. We're beyond having kids. Why should I have to pay for maternity coverage? In Washington State, if you have insurance, You've got to pay for maternity coverage. I'm a 50-year-old man. My wife's 53. I hope I didn't mess that up. <laughs> <laughs> she's watching probably. <laughs> I know she's born in 67. Do the math. Yeah, 53. Um, anyway, um, yeah, we didn't need maternity coverage, but we still have to pay for it. And maternity coverage is expensive. So uh, people, here's another thing. Dr. Smith hit on it. How many people – I talk about this in my book – how many people stay in a job they absolutely hate. They hate it and they feel like a slave to it. But my employer pays for my health insurance and I need that. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Health sharing ministry can be very affordable. You do not need that health insurance. It's a ripoff. It's a scam. Most things aren't covered anyway. Do not be in slavery for the rest of your life to a job you hate because of health insurance. It's a ripoff. And I think that's one of the things – that's one of my goals, and I talk about it in my book, is that employees need to start talking with their employer and saying, you know what? That health insurance you provide me, I realize it's a ripoff now. First of all, I'm proactive in my own health. I'm in good health in, in general. The best health insurance we can have. I quote this in my book in Chapter 6. Um, it's, I quote it. It's my quote. The best health insurance we can have is not some policy that we can buy. It's how we take care of ourselves period. That's the best health insurance we can have. Not some policy we can buy. So do not be a slave to an employer, to a job you hate because of health insurance. You can do something better. DPC, health sharing programs, they are very, very affordable. Be liberated. It is very liberating feeling, let me tell you. Dr. Smith, that's awesome. So I got some more questions for you, okay? Sure. Are you still going to do OB in when you go direct primary care? I don't know. Um, that's something I'm, I'm not sure how many people will be interested in. There are doctors in the direct primary care space that are. Uh, Dr. Amber Beckenauer in Nebraska um, offers that. Um, and, and I've had some discussions with her about how that's modeled. Um, so it, it will be interesting. I'll have to have those discussions directly with the patients that might be interested because Right now, the majority of my deliveries are with the state Medicaid um, program. And so not no longer being a part of that uh, will, will be interesting um, because yeah. right now when people are covered with that, there is no out-of-pocket cost necessarily for their delivery. And so trying to discuss any type of um, value for a cash-based service uh, may be a little bit um, foreign, a foreign concept. And the people who do have private insurance, I mean, we, we outline that for them when they're here for their prenatal coverage and um, to say, well, this is what your out-of-pocket will be. And oftentimes their out-of-pocket um, cost for their deliver for their prenatal care with me, I, I can't say their delivery because there's hospital charges on top of that as well. But uh, my portion of their care, even through insurance, may be $1,500 to $2,000 
through their insurance model. Now that's right. the exact same price I could offer them for my right. services cash. So, um, so there may be a segment that um, is interested in that. And that's something we'll, I'll just have to explore um, to see how many people are actually interested. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's one of the questions we always get. And that's why I like the DPC movement because there's more DPC doctors, the primary care doctors get into this. There's more, specialists like orthopedic surgeons, like urologists that are kind of gravitating towards it because then um, they have kind of a place to refer people to. And there might be DPC doctors that, you know, don't have um, OB privileges or don't don't deliver babies, but they could, you know, refer a patient to, to somebody like you. So as the movement grows, that's what's going to happen. And I, I love it because five years ago, that wasn't always the case. It was like, well, you know, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, you'd have a primary care doctor that was kind of stuck out there and say, well, I don't know. I mean, you need surgery for your knee or whatever, but I've got to fit into this hospital. It's going to charge you $50,000, um, you know? And so Dr. Keith Smith has been a great pioneer in that area. And, um, you know, and there's other surgeons that are following. And I, I can't wait to see more, more surgery centers are popping up. Mm-hmm. I want to see birthing centers pop up. I mean, I will tell you, if I was having a child today, I wouldn't go to a hospital. There's no way. You're going to be surprised with a huge bill. Service, let's face it, service sucks. Quality mm-hmm. sucks. I mean, it is what it is. Hospitals are expensive. Their service sucks. Their quality sucks. And it, it just is what it is. And so I would I would much rather have paid cash for – if I was in that market, I'd pay cash for it to a to birthing center for sure. So, so – Dr. Kelsey Smith, thank you for being on our show. I want to ask you one final question. Sure. So what drives you? What fires you up? Why do you do what you do? Why do you get out of bed every day and do what you do? It, it really is. I touched on it earlier. It's that relationship-based care with my with my patients. And um, that's something that is not valued in the current system. Um, when I come to, to work and when I see somebody for their high blood pressure, it it's rarely solely a discussion about their high blood pressure. It's a discussion of, you know, where is your stress level right now? Why is your blood pressure high? And um, what does your mental health look like right now? Um, what what type of family history do you have? Do we need to, you know, be delving into that? And so getting to know my patients personally and their families is what I think makes me a more valuable um, physician to them rather than knowing that their blood pressure might be 156 over 92 and what the algorithm should be to, to lower that. Um, so, so not, it's not the, the knowledge, the medical knowledge that gets me out of bed each day to keep doing this job. It's, it's the relationships I have with my patients to be able to point them in a direction that um, will lead them to better health. And so that, that's what I usually say when I, um, send out my emails to my patients is I just thank you for allowing me to partner with you in your healthcare because uh, as you said, it's uh, the patient's proactiveness is what plays such a role in the success of their, of their health. And, and that's something that I'm, I'm happy to partner with people to do. Um, you know, the, the medical knowledge is, is part of it. And that's a tool in my, in my bag, but um, it's the relationships that keep me coming to work. 
Absolutely. I love it. Well, thank you, Dr. Smith, for being part of the revolution. You were definitely making a change in the healthcare system and, you know, you're making a change in patients' lives. And that's, that's what's so important. I'm sure that's why you went into medicine, as most doctors do. So instead of being stuck in a system that you really can't change, you got out of the system and you're part of the revolution. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. I really do. Thank you for being on our show. It's been a wonderful show. And Tune in Monday, 1 to 2 p.m. Speaking of delivering babies, we will have an OBGYN doctor on um, who is going to talk about what you can do um, for prenatal care and to help delivery smoother and all other things um, OBGYN related, including um, testosterone for women. So do women need testosterone? Yes, they do, just not as much as men. So so tune in Monday, 1 to 2 p.m. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, streaming live on my personal Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube site. You can also catch us on uh, the podcast forum. So Google, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all those, iHeartRadio. Go to those, like them, share. Please like our YouTube page so you don't miss any updates. And uh, that that concludes our show today. Thank you so much again, Dr. Smith, for, for agreeing to be on. We, wanna, sure. we want to... Um, we want you to keep us updated on how your practice goes in January, and we would like to do a follow-up show maybe you know, five, six months down the road to see Great. how you're doing. I'd love to check in with you. I appreciate it. That'll be wonderful. All right. Thank you for listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday, 1 to 2 p.m. Thank you so much for watching and listening.